Line-ups, folk, Harry Bridges, us workers got to get wise. Our wives and kids will starve to death if we don't get organized. Oh, the FBI is worried, the bosses, they are scared. They can't depart six million men, they know. And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the we're keeping it warm. <clears throat> we're keeping the seat warm for you i guess we're holding it down yeah bushwick is a trip have you ever read about the blackout riots of 1977 oh sure um not only read about them but if you go through the neighborhood and you know about the riots uh, and the burnings you can see the still the scars of it still on the neighborhood to this day yeah it's a trip because one of the things to arise from that was uh all the cops lived everywhere else, so they couldn't get into the city. They were all stuck on Staten Island and Long Island. Hmm. Still to which this is, day. Which is germane to uh, Eric Adams, right? Which it's like, you know, here are the guy's living in New Jersey, and he's borough president of Brooklyn. Yeah. But he's, he's actually pretty typical of cops. And he's also, uh, he was really popular in the outer boroughs, which is part of the <laughs> same uh, dynamic. Yeah, it's a trip. I remember Eric Adams. He was uh, um, during, especially the Giuliani administration, when they were killing all these people, you know, every Saturday, Eric Adams and the Black Guardians of Justice would hold a press conference. And I was like, this guy's running for mayor. It just took him like several decades to uh, pull it off. Took him a whole the Black Guardians of Justice were were they like one of those sort of black nationalist connected community groups? Uh, it was an in, uh, I may have the name wrong, but it was an internal police, essentially a, oh, okay. a black caucus within the NYPD. I see, uh, but they supported and, uh, yeah, the police. It, they they, they were that? they were they supported like the Amadou Diallo killing and and that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, they walked a fine line between uh, raising questions, wanting justice. Uh, but never stepping over the line of uh, kind of indicting. You know, the NYPD is just, they're pretty awful. I mean, they, yeah. they're notorious for one of their biggest budget items for, for decades was paying out for, you know, beating and killing people. So, mm. yeah. And uh, so what, when did you move to Brooklyn? Uh, well, I lived in Brooklyn from 1980. I was in and out of various parts of uh you know, the New York area. I've okay. only been in LA for like three years. Okay. Well, you've moved to maybe the only place in this country that has a more detestable and violent police culture than New York City. Los yeah, Angeles Sheriff's yeah. Department. Except in, in LA, you can, uh, you know, because it's so sprawling, you can actually live outside of that. I mean, if you live in certain areas, it's one way. But New York, it, the police are ubiquitous. I mean, yeah. I was riding on Coney Island during uh, Giuliani's um, uh, era. I was riding a bicycle, and I got a summons from an undercover sting operation. Mm. And I had to go to court. And it it was like real court, you know? I mean, it it wasn't just like a traffic ticket. And I was there, and there were all these people who were like, you know, there for drinking beer on their stoop, you know. Oh, just... we've been there, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I will yeah. say that it's gotten better um, during the de Blasio years. Stop and Frisk has largely come to an end. Eric Adams says he wants to bring it back, but it was ruled unconstitutional. So it's unclear about what he's actually going to be able to do. But uh, 
a combination of that and uh, the movement for black lives and the uprising last year has really put the police on their back foot. Um, so you can now, they still give out tickets for drinking in public, but it used to be like tens of thousands of tickets a year. Now mm-hmm. it's way down. They just, they're not doing the, the quality of life, broken windows, policing to the degree that they, they were uh, during the Bloomberg Giuliani years. Um, yeah, so it's, the, it's yeah, felt daily, a lot better in the city. Yeah, the Daily News and the New York Post, though, are really kicking up a wind about crime, which, you know, I suspect, you know, a certain amount of it is real. But uh, Yes, it is. But the Washington Square Park thing is so interesting because there are these chaotic, violent, drug-fueled, improvised parties in Washington Square Park every night. But the police are really, like, using it, like, letting it happen, having the Post there to make it look like the city has just gone to the dogs and that the police need to come in to restore order. Um, so it's it's a it's a really interesting dynamic. You yeah, know, they, they're kind of missing the point that this right. is the script they do, right? I mean, you. Well, it's not entirely know. a script though, because like the city is like trying to break out of these years, like not just the pandemic, but these years of the police controlling everything. This being a city for the rich. For the last year, the rich people kind of left, and like working class people and young people kind of had their run of things. And so there there is, even though it's like framed around these kids having parties, there is this power struggle between like the people of the city and the police that's like that's the proxy for it that's how i see it at least well it's interesting when i say script and i could be mistaken i i just remember there were particular incidents that were put out there nationally I, there was some a group of tourists from utah i forget if it was the early 90s or whatever but you know this young kid gets stabbed on the subway and it became you know all the news and you know and then it was like, uh, I think Dinkins may have been mayor. And it was like, you know, Mayor Dinkins, you have to do something. And I mean, they seize on these egregious incidents. Right. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, to, that's true. And, and how do you argue against that? Right. I mean, it's like uh, this is where the left can end up in a real box. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to. Anyway, I'm gonna anyway use... we should do a podcast on that. Right. Yeah. Well, I've got that. I, I started recording about four minutes ago, so I can, uh, I can okay, plug that great. in somewhere. Or we can we can just get started. And I'm going to use I'll just use this opportunity through the magic of podcasting to to, to segue into the episode. So um, all this talk of uh, police repression and, and the security state is very germane to what we're talking about today. Hello and welcome to the Antifada. This is Sean and I'm here with Andy. Hello. On our last episode, we talked about the Lavender Scare and the Red Scare, and we're going to stay with that theme a little bit uh, with a researcher of the North American left and government surveillance and the repression of it, Aaron J. Leonard, author of The Folk Singers and the Bureau. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so to start off, I I thought we would just go around and say, like, what our background and in interest in folk music is uh, like for me, I grew up in Westchester County right near where the Clearwater river revival, which was a, a festival started by Pete Seeger. I think in the sixties, the um, basically an environmentalist festival with like a lot of folk performers every year. And so as a kid, I would go to this like neo hippie boomer festival that was really stripped of most of his political content besides like, environmentalism, you know, calls to keep the Hudson River clean and such. But there is always little indications there of folk music's uh, communist Marxist militant history. Uh, For example, people would occasionally mention that Pete Seeger, this old man who would get on stage and play sometimes with a banjo, was a communist. Um, Sometimes there'd be like a 
a slightly radical group like Anarchist Black Cross or the Rude Mechanical Orchestra. And so uh, I always thought that maybe folk music, despite its reputation um, amongst us kids as like really boring Peter, Paul and Mary bullshit, um, coming from like some of the 60s or Bob Dylan being um, something our parents thought was like the most mind blowing, brilliant thing. Basically, our generation, I think, sees folk music as being kind of lame. Although now I do think that Bob Dylan is the most mind blowing, amazing thing. But that's like my trip that I'm on. So, yeah, I was always interested in learning about like what folk music really was. And so we're going to like talk about one chapter of it. But I also want to get into the question of, of what American folk music is and how it's different than folk music writ large. Um, but what about you, Sean? What is your, your history of oh, folk music? Um, I think uh, a lot of the Peter, Paul, and Mary stuff, um, that sort of popular folk got passed down to me just having kind of hippie-ish boomer parents. And I was fortunate in my early 20s to have some friends who were into playing guitar and, you know, jamming and stuff like that. And so they got me into Bob Dylan a bit. And then I found Bob Dylan's much maligned first record, which is mostly a cover of old folk standards. And through his song, Song for Woody, I ended up finding Woody Guthrie and going through a serious Woody Guthrie period of especially his labor Take anthems. a trip with me in 1913 To Calumet, Michigan in the copper country I'll take you to a place called Italian Hall And the miners Christmas ball I'll take you in a door and up a high stairs singing and dancing is heard everywhere I'll let you shake hands with the people you see and watch the kids dance round the big Christmas tree you ask about work and you ask about pay they'll tell you they make less than a dollar a day working their corporate claim risking their lives so it's Calumet 1913 about the Italian Hall massacre of a bunch of union thugs. I'm sorry, a bunch of company thugs against There's the unions. Um, some of them were probably thugs. Yeah, but and that's okay. Yeah. You learn that from the song, that it's okay to have union thugs on your side anyways. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, that was a long time ago, but I still, you know, appreciate and respect the music. And I don't know, I didn't know that much about the communist history of folk music until I read Aaron's book, which was very enlightening. I also understood recently why Peter, Paul, and Mary was so popular with our parents, especially our dads, is from watching some videos. I think it's because of Mary. <laughs> Not Peter or Paul. So Aaron, why don't you tell us about why you chose to write about this and what your interest in folk music is? Yeah, well, before I get to that, something uh, Sean just said made me realize something, because uh, Dylan's song to Woody has this line... Uh, about the world being tired and worn. And, and then he caps it off by saying, it feels like it's dying and it's hardly been born. Mm -hmm. and, and then I'm remembering uh, this line I came across recently, Mark Fisher's uh, Capitalist Realism, where he talks about, you know, in the contemporary era, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. Uh, and I, I think those two lines actually coincide with each other. And, you know, you know, one person's a political theorist and one's an artist, but they're both getting at something that 
you know, I think people who care about the world and the future are really wrestling with right now. I mean, the way I got onto folk music, look, I got to be candid. It, it was not my thing. You know, I mean, I'm a, I matured in the seventies listening to Lou Reed and uh, David Bowie. Um, I'd always been a big Dylan fan, but you know, folk music, I, I didn't really understand what it was. I did. First off, I didn't understand. I liked as much as I did. Like I, I actually kind of turned my nose up at Peter, Paul and Mary who, you know, I mean, they do blowing in the wind and it's, um, it's a, it's a, almost a lament, you know, it doesn't have the angry drive that uh, Dylan puts into it. But so I, I got into this, you know, I backed into it. I was, I'd written two books on Maoism and radicalism uh, in the sixties or, you know, long sixties, if you will. Uh, And I was going to do a third book about, you know, radical music uh, in the sixties and how the FBI pursued musicians which is actually a project I'm working on now. Um, I actually have some confidence I can do that. But at the time, I couldn't do it. I was trying to get FBI files uh, for people like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. And of course, you know, they're still alive and they need to give you permission. Uh, People who had recently passed away or passed away, period, um, Richie Havens, they, I couldn't get a file on Richie Havens. Sam Cooke, the FBI claims, you know, Sam Cooke was a big supporter of the civil rights movement, had, um, you know, knew Malcolm X and uh, Muhammad Ali. They said they had destroyed Sam Cooke's file. Uh, similarly, Nina Simone, I couldn't find an FBI file. So I, you know, didn't have the wherewithal to write the book. But in the course of Researching it, I read Sean Wilentz's book, Bob Dylan in America, and he has a paragraph or so about Woody Guthrie. Uh, you know, look, I'm an old radical leftist. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not that anymore, but, you know, it's uh, I spent many years being a member of the organized left. You would think I would know some things about Woody Guthrie, but I actually never quite occurred to me or realized uh did he had an organized affiliation with the Communist Party? And I read Wilentz's book, and I was like, oh, Woody must have been in the CP. So I start, you know, and, and if he was in the CP, the FBI would have an FBI file. Um, sure enough, he did. Uh, it had been released in 1980, so I sent off and I got it. And I was looking through it. It raised as many questions as it answered. You know, I've since gotten... Uh, the FBI has headquarters file, and then they have local office files. The headquarters file was released. The New York and Los Angeles files had never been released. So I had asked the National Archives for copies and ended up getting them, and they filled in a lot of information. But with Woody's file in hand, I said, well, let me look at Pete Seeger's file because I know that's out there, and I got that. And then I was like, well, let's look at the rest of this folk music cohort. And sure enough, every one of them had an FBI file. Alan Lomax, Lee Hayes, Ronnie Gilbert, uh, Fred Hellerman, Josh White, Paul Robeson, of course, not a folk singer per se, but, you know, in that milieu. So, you know, I had an abundance of files and the wherewithal to write a book. So, and I kind of used 
the folk music to reveal a story that really intrigued me, which was how did the United States essentially neuter the Communist Party in the United States? You know, how did the United States government basically, you know, bring the Communist Party in the U.S. to such a state that it was uh, barely uh, effectual? And so there's, there's actually two stories that go on and intermingle uh, in the book. So that's, uh, that's how I came to this, you know, and since then I've, I've come to realize uh, that, the, that the wealth of folk music from that period is far more influential than I understood. But, you know, we can talk about that a bit as we go on. Yeah, but uh, so let's, before we get started with, um, you know, communist involvement in, in folk music and the state repression of it, um, what is American folk music when we're talking about Guthrie and Seeger and everything that came from that? Um, it's obviously it's something different than like European folk music, which is like this traditional ancestral um, kind of recreation. Uh, uh, but uh, American folk music is very particular. I'm not an ethnomusicologist, so the, the answer I can give is only... Uh, you know, my lay approximation. I mean, folk music is essentially music that, that's handed down generally orally. Uh, American folk music is, you know, it actually, I don't think you can disentangle it from Africa or Europe, uh, where it, you know, which is what constituted the U.S. nation, all these people coming over. Uh, and it hadn't quite gotten a lot of attention. And, you know, it was by these enthusiasts like uh, Seeger and Alan Lomax uh, in the 30s and 40s that started excavating, you know, uh, Alan Lomax and his father, John Lomax, who were out of Austin, Texas, spent a lot of time uh, going through uh, workhouses and prisons in the South collecting songs. Um I'm drawing a blank here, but a good friend of mine, Steve Garabidian, just wrote a book about black songs of protest uh, and uh, a CP supporter who collected uh, these more, um, you know, for lack of a better word, incendiary songs of, of black people, you know, talking about the white man and oppression. Uh, you know, so all of these were collected. Uh, Lomax actually did a tour of the South with uh, Zora Neale Hurston on the uh, islands off the Georgia coast collecting songs. So these songs actually have roots in Africa. And, you know, you can find that throughout the Caribbean, you know, different regions bring in different influences. So I don't think you can really understand American folk music outside of a larger global context. And, you know, the context being, you know, the uh, development of capitalism and the enslaving of people or the moving uh, in migrations of huge populations from Europe for one reason or another. Um, but, you know, in the middle of the 19th century, you know, the United States is about to become a world power. So there actually is an interest in enshrining a national identity and thus folk music, you know, you know gets put to the center, which is, which is probably a lot of why it's a big deal. You know, it's not, you know, it's not like, that particular form is absolutely American as much as it is, uh, you know, forging out, you know, a certain uh, definition of a people and such. So, you know, and it, and it encompassed ballads, murder ballads, 
blues, work songs, cowboy songs, you know, all those kind of things. Yeah, the uh, something like the American Folkways series, which was, uh, I believe, published by the Smithsonian, where Lomax and his um, collaborators went around and basically excavated all of these songs that might otherwise have been lost to history. So much of that original kind of oral canon that existed was, um, was about the travails of, of work life. You know, so it's, uh, I wonder, it, it, was there a natural affinity between, say, the, the Communist Party and the sort of um, kind of themes of, of folk music in the early 20th century? Uh, the Communist Party is kind of funny. I mean, they're, like most parties, they, they tend to be a little bit behind the time and don't exactly know what's cool and what's not, but they attracted these young people who love this music. You know, you got to think of me. I mean, you were talking about Pete Seeger being this old guy from upstate New York, you know, once upon a time, he was a young guy, you know, rail thin with a full head of hair and a, an abundance of curiosity. All these folks uh, were in their 20s uh, and they, you know, they discovered this music. It's kind of like uh, today you'll get kids discovering the Sex Pistols or the Clash, you know, like, whoa, look what I discovered, you know. So they're just discovering this music. Um, and then the Communist Party uh, in the late 30s is adopting this united front policy uh, where they're trying to reach out and embrace, you know, huge swaths of the U.S. population. So, you know, folk music was one vehicle to get into the working class. Uh, more pointedly, though, throughout the 30s, a lot of what the Communist Party was listening to was classical music because a lot of their base was from Europe. Mm. Um, some of these folks didn't even speak English, you know, so there's, there's singing choirs and there's classical music. There was even a composer's collective <clears throat> that consisted of people like uh, Pete Seeger's father and Aaron Copeland, the famous composer who later uh, broke with communism. And they were, you know, trying to, you know, insert some influence on classical music and stuff. So, uh, but later on, uh, as the 40s turn into the early 50s, the uh, C.P. Moore embraced the folk uh, milieu. You know, they actually established a party club, a party unit uh, in Greenwich Village to uh, pay attention to folk music and stuff. But it was, I think, it was a little bit of a push and pull. And I discussed that some in the book, uh, how that worked out. And for uh, the listeners, for some context, if they don't know, by the time the Great Depression comes and by the time Hitler had risen to power, the idea from the Comintern on down was that a popular front needed to be created between basically the Social Democrats and the Communists. So in the United States, the Communist Party USA uh, really begins to, to temper its line and uh, work alongside bourgeois political parties, but also begins to have real influence in sharecroppers unions, in tenants unions, in uh, trade unions across the country, and never quite becomes in the 30s a mass movement, but the Communist Party starts to have a ton of influence within important sectors of the American left. So this isn't this this connection between the CP and the and folk music isn't incidental. These two things kind of arose at the same time. Yes, exactly. And then that's a good, concise description of things. So this is something the, the FBI was investigating, and um, I think you were sort of investigating, too, through those documents and other sources. But um, to what extent was the Communist Party really directing folk music uh, through individuals like Alan Lomax, Pete Seeger, and John Hammond? 
I don't think they were directing it at all. I think, you know, they, the support was um, tacit. Um, but at the same time, it was, uh, um, how, how do I put that? I mean, like Alan Lomax is, uh, somebody on Twitter took me to task. Is like, well, you said Alan Lomax was in the Communist Party. You know, that's just not true. Um, and actually, I think what I say in the book is that Pete Seeger said Alan Lomax is in the Communist Party and that he was a secret member uh, because he worked for the Library of Congress. And if he had been an open communist, he wouldn't have been able to retrain, retain that job. Um, you know, and uh, the FBI file on Lomax is essentially trying to establish his Communist Party bona fides. Um, the gold standard for that is to get a copy of somebody's uh, Communist Party membership card, which you know, eventually, I think in the later 40s, they eliminated that. But the FBI was never able to get a copy of Lomax's card. But, you know, I uh, I think um, Pete Seeger is a pretty good source for that information. Um, Lomax was a couple years older than him and was something of a mentor uh, and Lomax is in this critical position where he can record people. He has a radio show on CBS radio back when radio was king. So he puts Woody Guthrie on the air. He puts uh, Hootie Ledbetter on the air, Leadbelly. Leadbelly is somebody him and his father had met in Louisiana. Leadbelly is hugely influential. Uh, you want to talk about the reach of folk music, um, George Harrison of the Beatles uh, makes this point. Uh, you know, the Beatles initially were inspired by skiffle music. Uh, Lonnie Donegan had a hit with Rock Island Lines. So George Harrison makes this statement. And I think it's a better statement than John Lennon. John Lennon is no Elvis, no Beatles. Um, I can hold forth on my opinion on Elvis another time. But so John Lennon says no Elvis, no Beatles. George Harrison says... Look, uh, no Lead Belly, no Lonnie Donegan, no Beatles. So he draws a straight line. So you want to talk about the influence of folk music. I, you know, for me, that's kind of like, that's a very good statement. Of course, the Beatles you know, revolutionized what popular music could be. And they, they did it in no small part uh, from this. Uh, I think Lead Belly was the, uh, his parents had been slaves. Lead Belly had a, extremely hard life but his music boy go back and listen to lead belly now and it's like it's hard rock you know in a, in a sense you know listen literally to rock island line it's like it's a trip and it's like it's only like uh, out of like uh, crushing human experience that this kind of music emerges he went to prison two times and i think did lomax meet him in prison during his second stint yeah, exactly. Uh, Lead Belly was first time in. It was a kind of a manslaughter thing, a fight over a woman, I believe. The second time, it's much more Jim Crow. Uh, Lead Belly has uh, had a few drinks. There's a Salvation Army band playing, and Lead Belly is dancing to it. And I think he's just dancing to it because he's artists and they're crazy, and they hear something beautiful and it just moves them. Uh, but a bunch of white men took issue with it. They they thought he was ridiculing the band. Uh, there was a fight, and um, uh, the white man got cut. Lead Belly went to prison. Um, so, you know, it was uh, eventually he got out, 
and the Lomaxes uh, brought him north. You know, it's uh, by today's standards, uh, it's it's not a fully equal situation, but they do bring him out uh, and introduce him to the culture cultural scene in New York. So he, he becomes a deal. Uh, but yeah, it was as direct result of Alan and his father, John Lomax, that Lead Belly just didn't, you know, labor in obscurity, you know, culturally in the Deep South. And of course, one of the reasons why uh, polite society, bourgeois society was so frightened and, um, I don't know, perturbed by the Communist Party, of course, was because of their uh, investment in civil rights uh, in a time in the 1930s a time of uh, deep poverty and a, and a time when Jim Crow was fully entrenched. So bringing a black artist up, uh, especially one who had been out of prison and making a record with them was, um, was proof for a lot of people that the, that the communists were trying to destroy Western civilization. Um, it's, I, I think we should remind people too that, the, and you're really good at this in your book, in the 19, uh, starting in the 1920s, the United States, certainly by this period, had an internal security service. It had a repressive uh, state apparatus. It had the FBI, who from the very beginning, in fact, part of their charter was to um, smash up any attempt you know, at threatening American capital. And so the Communist Party USA is very much um, investigated all the way through this period. And of course, too, that leads naturally to folk music being associated with that, being uh, investigated by J. Edgar Hoover, and um, and this bureau of thousands of thousands of people. So the repression really be- starts at the beginning. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting because uh, first off, you know, I, I have a whole critique of the Communist Party. I'm not a sycophantic supporter and all that. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into all the nuances, you know, just this minute. But, but you know, the the establishment of the state you know, there's this force, you know, seemingly outside and neutral that actually has the legitimate use of violence is going through some big evolutionary steps. I mean, you know, during the Civil War, the biggest component, almost the only component of the state is the military. Uh, but as the United States develops and becomes much more powerful because it just has this huge wealth of productive forces and the riches of you know, the exploitation of labor, it becomes more and more powerful. Coming out of World War One. you know, it becomes a major world power. Um, and, you know, in tandem with that, you start to see the development of essentially uh, political police. I mean, there are the Palmer raids in the 20s that rounded up thousands of immigrants and communists um, and, you know, and it, it's the first Red Scare. Uh, and this is where J. Edgar Hoover starts to uh, appear as a figure in the national scene. Uh, and then, you know, in the period heading into World War II, you know, look, the United States is on the cusp of not just becoming a world power. They're on the cusp of becoming the most powerful country in the world. So between the 20s and the 40s, the FBI goes from an organization of hundreds to an organization of you know many thousands. And coming out of World War II, there's I believe there's tens of thousands of staff and agents in the FBI. And, you know, it's commensurate with uh, this is a global power. And you know, I mean, the actually FBI files. I didn't realize until I started doing this. You don't really see a lot of FBI files before. 
1940, you know, because that's when Franklin Roosevelt, you know, who is lauded as this great liberal, you know, he's the guy who gave Jagger Hoover his power. Um, he's the guy that told Jagger Hoover, I need you to do a list of people to put into detention in the event of a national crisis. You know, initially, um, Roosevelt wanted a list of Nazis and communists, you know, and Hoover ran with that. And essentially, by 1949, it became a list of tens of thousands of communists to be detained in the event of most likely a war with the Soviet Union. But all that developed up into, you know, uh, the period after World War II, and it, it got carried into, you know, the 60s. You know, I mean, what Hoover and the FBI were doing in the 60s was everything that they had developed in the post-World War II period. So it's very interesting to, you know, the, the earliest folk singer files I find is Alan Lomax in 1941 and Woody Guthrie in 1941. There isn't a lot there beforehand. I mean, maybe there were some handwritten reports, but as far as what I was able to attain, uh, nothing compared to from 1941 on, you start to get hundreds and then thousands of pages. Um, so a lot of the book deals with uh, what you found in these files relating to people like Woody Guthrie, Pete and Tashi Seeger, and then recently you've put out some really fascinating articles about uh, some of the 60s folk singers like Dave Von Ronk, um, Bob Dylan, Susie Rotolo. Um, not Bob Dylan, of course, because you're still looking for those files, still waiting for those files. Um, but was it your impression that the FBI was specifically interested in or worried in folk music, or were they just keeping tabs on Communist Party members in general, and folk music was just an area of their uh, investigation? Well, you know, what I'm, I'm coming to realize, and I, I don't think people quite get this because, you know, we live in the world today where, you know, there isn't any socialist model fraught as it may be that people are hanging their hat on. I mean, China's ostensibly socialist, but, you know, the its affinity for capitalism and market economy is just right out there. Um, it's, it's hardly a model, you know, a model contrary to the United States in terms of its underlying um, economic drive. But in 1949, I think about one third of the world was under some kind of self-proclaimed socialist model. I mean, the actual, you know, it's interesting. People tend to look at history in, in a very narrow scope. But if you look at, you know, blocks of 100 years or even thousands of years, you actually see different trends. But I, I was just recently thinking and reading some stuff and talking to his friends about World War One. You know, in the aftermath of World War One, there was a lot that was just thrown up. I mean, countries were just disappearing. You know, regimes that had been in place for a long time, monarchies. I mean, they just left. They were just gone. I mean, the Bolsheviks seized power in the Soviet Union, and, you know, all these countries that are now independent nations were in this uni unified bloc, ostensibly trying to develop socialism. There was, like, revolution in Germany, um, where, you know, Luxembourg and Liebknecht uh, and their left uh, party attempted to seize power, and, you know, they were pushed back and they were executed. Uh, Hungary, there were revolutions. I mean, it's 
the whole world just got thrown up. Uh, you know, we do live in a world where uh, it's not been that long where we've seen entire nations just disappear. You know, you know borders disappear, be redrawn. Uh, it happened after World War One, and it happened even more pointedly after World War Two. I mean, you know, look, forget, you know, put aside all your Tom Hanks D-Day uh, narratives. You know, World War Two, there were two winners: the Soviet Union and the United States. I mean, the Soviet Union. Uh, think of them what you will; they defeated the Nazis much more so than the United States. They lost upwards of 20 million people, civilians and soldiers. Uh, the U.S. lost, I believe, a half a million. I mean, you know, all these lives meant something to the people who loved them, but uh, the scale of comparison is, is mind-boggling. Uh, you'll still uh, get uh, defenders of the United States war effort going, but Lend-Lease, but Lend-Lease. I mean, sure, America's productive capacity uh, did a lot uh, towards that war, but 20 million uh, dead Soviets, that's, that's hard to downplay. Yeah, and I, I think Churchill himself might have said, look, we were diddling around with a few divisions in Italy and France, uh, and but most of the fighting was on the Eastern Front, and it was brutal. And, you know, I mean, I've read some things about um, what the Nazis did to the Soviet Union, and it, it's, it's appalling on the level of, you know, what was done against the Jewish people. Um, anyway, so the point is, is... After World War II, it's a different world. You know, there's this socialist block, and then there's this capitalist block, and it's like which one is going to be preeminent is is not at all clear, and and that's the context of understanding, you know, the Communist Party in the United States. It's not you know, look, it's not like DSA. I mean, it actually is part of a international movement i mean the, there was a communist international this affiliation of parties worldwide that was put on hold during world war ii but you know the, the question of who's going to rule the world appeared to be wide open now of course that's not how things develop you know that socialism ultimately collapsed um and i i think the critique of it is still ongoing but for a moment around you know, when, when Mao Zedong assumed power in 1949, I think the U.S. was, uh, what's the word, wetting their pants you know, <laughs> about what the future was going to be. You, um, despite what the FBI believed, uh, you put forward in your book, of course, that there wasn't, it wasn't like the folks seeing all these artists were directly run by the Communist Party. But you used the word milieu before, which I think is really important because all these, many of these folk singers um, were in an intellectual milieu and a, and a physical milieu with so many of these uh, leftist uh, groups and, and unions and organizers and things of that sort. So even if, even if they weren't directly run by the CP, there's a huge affinity there. And your book does a really great job of showing how the international diplomatic events that happened during this period, like the Hitler-Stalin pact, like the Popular Front, the Tehran Conference, and Khrushchev's secret speech, uh, influenced uh, decisions made inside the United States Communist Party, and ultimately in folk music as well. So what were some major examples of this? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge question. Um, uh, well, first off, you know, somebody wrote... Uh, you know, they read my book and they wrote a little critique and they said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically it's like this person was in the party. This person was in the party. This person wasn't this person. And, 
you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, they didn't seem to like the book very much, which, well, you know, I, I'd like to say it hurt my feelings, but, I, you know, I, I think I understand where they're coming from. But the, the point they missed was um, I do spend a lot of time in the book uh, establishing whether or not people had organizational affiliation uh, because uh, the FBI was keeping these huge files. And if they're keeping huge files on people who are not really in the Communist Party and don't really have much vested in it, then the FBI is a little nuts. I mean, they're just on this fool's errand. Uh, and as I say in the introduction, if that had been the overall conclusion I found, I probably wouldn't have written the book. I don't want to write a book about the FBI doing something really pointless. Um, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of book than the one I wanted to write. What I actually discovered was most of these people did have uh, a very uh, uh, firm partisanship to the party, and quite a few of them were members, people I did not think were, were members. So I, I kind of had to establish that to establish um, then whether or not the FBI was on track or not. You know, for example, Lomax, I mentioned Lomax, and most people don't think he was a member of the party, and uh, I tend to think he was. The evidence points that way. But there's this uh, woman, Aunt Molly Jackson, who came out of, you know, uh, the mining country of Kentucky, who, you know, I actually got her file, and they had her party membership card. You know, Bess Lomax, Bess Lomax, who... Uh, you know, you can look on the Internet of uh, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton giving her some Medal of Freedom or a Medal of the Arts. I'm not sure which. You know, she was in the Communist Party. She stayed in the party even after Khrushchev denounced Stalin. You know, Bess Lomax is famous for writing uh, this song, uh, uh, The MTA, which the Kingston Trios had a hit with in the late 50s. It's about this guy, Charlie, who gets on the MTA and he can't get off because he can't uh, afford the fare. Oh, he never returned. He never returned. You know, Bess Lomax wrote that. And her and her husband were, you know, because there's an informant in the, her club in, in Southern California. You're reading the reports of what she's saying, you know, in these meetings. So, so the point is, is a lot of these people actually were organizationally affiliated or very close involved. Woody Guthrie, uh, 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 Ronald Radish, uh, is a, I think he's, he would call himself a conservative commentator. He's, he's not a big fan of communism. He actually makes the case for Guthrie having been in the party. And I actually found some other evidence as well that, you know, Guthrie for a short time was a member of the Communist Party. I mean, they some of the people close to him say, oh, he was a communalist, you know, he was a fellow traveler, etc. I mean, the only reason Guthrie wasn't a long-term member of the party is just because of personal discipline. Dorothy Healy, the uh, leader of the Los Angeles Party, I think she put it best. She said, look, uh, if Woody wasn't in the party, he was the closest thing to it. So, you know, for me, that matters. It's like these people are in political organizations. I used to be in a, a Maoist organization. You join these organizations, it's a you know big effing deal. You know, it's like you're saying you agree with this. You know, this is who you are. So for these people to have been a member of the party um, means something so you know kind of getting to that gets at the 
you know, something more essential about who they are as people and who they are as artists. So actually understanding them is very important. So I do spend some time in the book on that. I know, I know I'm probably talking a bit further beyond your, your actual question, but oh, no, that's, it, it is an important point nonetheless. Yeah, for sure. Um, if we move the history along a little bit, right, because we got up to like the Second World War before, um, of course, there's this brief sort of truce between um, the uh, forces of reaction uh, and, uh, and the left in this country when it came time to fight the Second World War against the Germans. And there was, of course, a great alliance between the United States and the Soviet Union, but very quickly after the end of the war, by like 46, 47 you start to see this uh, this truce breaking down. And reading your book, it's it's like, especially in the early, talking about the 1930s and into the 1940s, this, this kind of impending sense of doom because you know what's going to happen to so many of these characters, you know, who get caught up in the maelstrom of uh, the second Red Scare. So midway through the book, um, and we're talking McCarthyism, of course, we're talking the blacklists and all of that in the late 40s and early 50s, into the 50s. Uh, there's a, an aside midway uh, through your book where you mention that there's repression happening all over the world at this, peer, at this time. Um, but you mentioned that American prosperity um, compared to other nations who were in turmoil meant that repression in the United States took on a different form than it did maybe in Soviet Russia or than it did in, uh, in Western Europe. So how was the blacklist unique to the United States and why do you think the repression of the communist left uh, and the left in general in the U.S. took the form that it did? Yeah, no, I appreciate that question because, you know, everybody points to overseas all these uh, you know, appalling actions of people being executed or sent to gulags and things like that. Um, but it's it's my sense. It's like the stronger the power is, the stronger you actually have the uh, I mean, look, there is a reason in the United States so much emphasis is put on the, the legitimacy of democracy and why, you know, you can't look at any major media without being bombarded with electoral politics. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the point is, is we are supposed to feel like this is ours. We have a say, you know, and we're going along with this willingly uh, because when there's alien, you know, even I don't want to open up too big a can of worms, but Trump, even at his worst, uh, you know, these major media people were still calling him president, mm. uh, you know, because they didn't want to delegitimate the overall political edifice Um you know, because if you do that, then you are actually risking uh, the country descending into a, a chaos, you know, even into a civil war and things like that. But when you, you know, and part of the stability of the United States, you know, f from World War II on has been the economic wealth as bad as things look, there's a reason people are complaining about all these social issues and, and they're occupying the center centerpiece uh, because there aren't bread riots, there aren't food shortages, you know, like in, in, in more repressive countries where people can't eat, um, you know, you support that by guns. I, my wife is from the Dominican Republic and it was a, an education when I, I first visited her country. And when it gets dark at night, men with guns 
turn out in front of stores, you know, and that's the way they protect property. Well, in the United States, you know, you're worried about a police patrol, maybe. But, you know, crime is a thing, but it's not like people are routinely, you know, except in, you know, circumstances of social unrest, they're not breaking into stores and looting uh, for food and the wherewithal to survive. So, you know, it allows the United States to conduct things differently. I mean, the Communist Party was not made uh, illegal in the way conventionally understood. I mean, it was kind of de facto illegal in the early 50s, but it wasn't like, uh, you know, and I think Hoover said, you know, we shouldn't do a mass roundup of communists in the early 50s. I think he wanted to keep his informants in place. And plus, I think he was worried about overall issues of legitimacy and, you know, making them look more sympathetic uh, than he thought they should be allowed to be. So the blacklist was, you know, it was like a social repression, right? You get called in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. You're asked if you're a communist. If you refuse to answer, you can go to prison. Um, you know, if you take the Fifth Amendment and say you're not going to say because it could incriminate you, then there's this stigma put on you. And if you're called a communist, in 1951, um, you know, you may as well be called a pedophile. Nobody's going to want to have anything to do with you in the vast element of the mainstream. And that allows you, you know, that solves the problem. You know, Pete Seeger uh, confronted prison because he didn't cooperate with HUAC. You know, he claimed, you know, he had a freedom of speech and they couldn't intrude on his own ideas, which I've come to understand that was actually the Communist Party's strategy to deal with that. But he didn't actually end up going to prison. He fought it out in the legal process. Uh, He couldn't appear on national TV. He couldn't appear in the most prominent clubs. You wouldn't hear him on national radio. He could occupy the fringe. You know, he could be on a public TV program and he could appear on college campuses. But he was only going to be allowed a certain audience. He wasn't going to be allowed uh, the public square. Uh, And that worked just fine. And it worked just fine because the overall power of the country is such that, you know, people are not, you know, essentially ready to die to challenge the government, you know, because life is, you know, if not good, it's, it's pretty tolerable. That makes a big difference, you know. I mean, compare that to a country like Haiti, where, uh, you know, every day is like, are you going to eat or not? I'm not saying that's true for everyone, but, you know, things are much more raw. And the way you control that situation is with armed might immediately. It doesn't descend down into it. So in the conclusion of your book, you say that um, a lot of the a lot of these repressive measures were put into place because, the global communist movement and the idea of socialism really did pose a threat. And the reason why we don't, uh, we're not aware of, of a similar repressive apparatus today um, is because these things no longer pose quite the same threat. But at the same time, we're seeing these, these, uh, this legislation against um, Antifa, against CRT, against, um, you know, protest tactics of blocking roads, which is clearly against, Black Lives Matter type protests. Uh, do you think this is something like a third red scare or is this a totally different phenomena? Uh, you know, I, I want to kind of temper the answer because 
everything's still unfolding, so it's it's not clear where it's all headed. Uh, but I don't want to totally dodge the question. I think it, things are qualitatively different. I think things are in a flux within the United States, and I think they're within flux uh, globally. Um, I think the repression against uh, Black Lives Matter and this uh, this whole uh, win being kicked up against critical race theory, I mean, they're real things, and there are real stakes. Um, but it seems like there's a, a, a thing that's getting worked out in the United States right now about what kind of country it's going to be. Uh, and on the one hand, there is this this real push for, you know, we're going to reimagine what the United States is, and it's going to be this diverse, inclusive society still predicated on capitalism. But, you know, we're, we let, you know, we're not going to have white supremacy have the same power it's had uh, throughout our history. So you got that poll and then you've got the poll against it, which is like, well, no, we need to go back down to the road of tradition. And the, the way it's getting worked out is very contentious and ugly. Uh, and where it all leads, um, you know, is is anybody's guess. I mean, the, the majority of population is on this, this kind of more liberal tip. But, you know, uh, the history is been known to make funny turns. I mean, I know a lot of people spent all the Trump years declaring that fascism was coming. And um, my question on that had always been what was central to fascism in Europe wasn't just the authoritarianism. It wasn't just the racism or in the case of Hitler, the genocidal stuff. It was also um, re redividing the world. Hitler wanted world power. You know, World War II was about who was going to rule the world. You know, England no longer held that position. It had been diminished in World War I, and it, it got totally knocked on its ass in World War II. So is Germany going to rule the world or the United States? And, you know, Germany lost, and then this whole new force, the Soviet Union, arose. Um, we're not there right now. You know, I mean, right now China is ascendant, but it's got internal problem of its own. The United States is descendant. Is that the right word? It's in, it's in a bit of decline. It's not clear if that decline is going to get checked and turned around. You know, I mean, it's a very powerful country. It has a lot, and I'm not being a cheerleader, it has a lot going for it militarily and in terms of, you know, the landmass, the you know, not having borders, you know, of antagonistic powers. I mean, I wouldn't count the U.S. out as a world power, but it is in roll. relative decline. Uh, so I think that's where we are in the world and that these movements are in relation to that. I mean, there's, for me, the maybe the frustration is there's no... Too many people are just looking within the United States uh, that we need to make a better America. And I, you know, I'm look, I'm still one of these small C communists where it's like we need a world without the United States. We need a world without all these countries. I mean, we're not in any position to get there uh, right now. I don't quite foresee it in, in the time ahead of me. But so people are just settling into, well, what can we make better here now and inclusiveness and and justice and things like that, when I think bigger visions are still 
needed because, you know, if you don't have a vision, you, you have no chance of realizing it. So uh, I, a bit of a, a, a bit of a, a puzzle, I guess. Um, so. I, I, I agree with you, I think, uh, about the idea of a third red scare. I do believe the stakes are much lower and um, what's being fought for is very different for sure. There is a way in which coming out of the 20th century, uh, two different forces kind of, even with the end of the Cold War, um, the reactionary right, uh, which of course is still exists big time in the United States, and also the state, uh, the bourgeois state, um, got almost addicted to this idea of uh, a plot against Western civilization and these dark evil forces uh, coming together in order to destroy freedom and, and their way of life or whatever. So I feel like even if, like again, the stakes are different now, there's, uh, there's still this tendency by large sections of power in this country in order to, to try to clamp down the first time somebody mentions, say, socialism or mentions social justice. And that comes out yeah, of the you, period you're talking you, about. You, you, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, it, you know, it is a trip. You can talk about all kinds of things in the U.S. right now. But when you talk, you don't hear a lot of mainstream debate about how at the core of everything, capitalism has fucked everything up right. and it will continue to do so until it's doomed. Yeah. You know, I mean, not to say it's going to implode on its own, but it's like there's no national debate about capitalism. There's debate about corporations, you know, adopting inclusiveness and education, adopting, you know, critical race theory. And, you know, there's merit uh, to these things, but the core issue of, you know, class hardly exists or it's put in there, and, you know, in the troik of race, gender, and class, um, you know, without getting the dialectic of what's going on. And the economic engine underneath this all is just not discussed. Instead, we see, you know, Richard Branson flying into space <laughs> like that's something to be happy about. Right. You know, what a what a narcissistic ass. You know, and, and go. What a, and what don't a, come back. <laughs> we don't need you and we don't need that Fly right model into the of the future. You know, we need a different kind of future. And, and plus you're burning all this fuel, which is just polluting the environment. So, you know, stop being so happy with yourself. And, and yes, I, I think to get that out of my system. No, no, Thank you. please. I, I, I feel the same way. And I think that the fact that uh, billionaires racing to get into space is so chintzy and small bore, it's about tourism. It's not about even like going to the moon or anything like that is really, I think it shows that the stakes all over the place uh, in our political structure are very low right now. And people are fighting right now, trying to avoid the real issues, the issues of the capitalist economy you're talking about, and American decline. And so falling back on this red scare rhetoric around culture, you know, allows us as a society to continue to dodge these important questions, even as small podcasts like the Antifada and Rev Left Radio try to talk about class. Yeah, and, you know, it does need to be talked about. I mean, just one last thing, and... Uh, Elon Musk. I mean, if these people think the answer to the world's problems is to go somewhere else, um, you know, they're missing something fundamental. If we can't solve the problems here, you know, we're just going to take these problems and reintroduce them someplace else. I would argue they are solvable here. Um, you know, whether or not we can solve them is an open question. But, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's, there is something, you know, you know, I read this book uh, recently called Social, How the Mind is Hardwired to uh, Connect. Uh, it's by this UCLA 
clinical psychiatrist, a very helpful book. But, you know, there is something kind of bedrock about humanity uh, that wants to connect with each other, wants to work together. I mean, unfortunately, you know, it's not like a, it's not like a Woodstock hippie thing you know, where we all just want to love each other. But we did evolve to be able to work together collectively. You know, so, so even on a basic evolutionary scale, I, I wish Marx was alive to read this book and try, try to get his insights. I mean, look, there's also other things about our evolution, which is, you know, the limbic system, the fight and flight, and, you know, all these basic things of surviving that also exist. So I don't want to just get into a, uh, a biological reductionism, but I do think there's a metaphorical element to the fact that you know if we can bring to bear you know something that's that's in our genes you know that would be good you know we do do better when we work together um, and then when conflicts arise that's where where it gets tricky and you know conflict arises even on people who agree on a lot of things so that's that's uh, the fly in the ointment as it were yeah and I think folk music um, especially this kind of Guthrie Seeger lineage of folk music always emphasize that the truth of radicalism, of communism, of, of syndicalism, whatever, came from the way common people interacted with one another and that these boundaries of race and gender and, uh, and nationality really um, began to dissolve in, in the common struggle, uh, of usually of class struggle, um, or of just you know living amongst one another. Um, and I think this is why communists saw folk music or, or the songs of common American people as, as so potent and so powerful. And indeed, they did become incredibly powerful, like we said, leading to uh, the genres that we understand now as American folk and blues and rock um, and all the, the influential genres that came from there uh, to the extent that now um, U.S. politicians like... Uh, Senators Gillibrand and Schumer celebrate Pete Seeger. Uh, Clinton, I think, gave him some sort of Medal of Honor. Woody Guthrie might be on a stamp, for all I know, uh, along with Lead Belly and, of course, Dylan, totally canonized as well. Uh, the radicalism, I, I think you quote, uh, you have that Lenin uh, State and Revolution quote about how uh, while these people are alive, they're hunted down and reviled and attacked, but, but now that they're dead, they're, they can finally be safely celebrated as heroes. Um, so, so what do you think of the, uh, you know, obviously you've done your part to, to sort of uh, remind people that, that folk music was, uh, was targeted, um, but, but what do you think of the cultural memory of folk, uh, or like what relevance does it have to us today? Yeah, well, you know, so like I said, I'm, I'm writing this book now about the 60s, right? And uh, look, look uh, first off, uh, in all this canon of folk music that I uh, I, I looked at uh, the best people I liked or my favorites are Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly. I mean, artistically, they seem to be the two standouts. Um, some people really love Pete Seeger. I think the power of Pete Seeger more than anything else, and you know, people you know will disagree with me is uh, you know that he got people to sing together, and there is something about that experience about sitting in a room singing with other people that just uh, there's nothing like it in the world. 
Thank you to Aaron J. Leonard, author of Folk Singers and the Bureau. We're going to talk a little bit more about that 60s stuff, about Bob Dylan, about the Black Panthers, the counterintelligence, and more in our Patreon-exclusive episode. If you like the show, please support us at patreon.com slash theantifada. My name is Howard Fast. I'm here to tell you the story of Peekskill. You see, there are actually two Peekskills, two concerts, two fascist attacks, and I was at both. You won't get the true story from the daily press or the radio, so we're putting it on record for you now. Here are the facts. You are invited to a summer concert with Paul Robeson, Pete Seeger, Hope Foy, Joan Schlesinger, and George Walker, presented by People's Artists for the benefit of the Harlem chapter of the Civil Rights Congress, Sunday, August 27, 1949, at the Lakeland Picnic Grove, Peekskill, New York. More facts. The Klan elements in Westchester County threatened violence. Police protection was asked. Four deputies showed up to watch 700 so-called veterans attack the early picnickers. These 700 hoodlums closed the only exits, and for three hours, they were kept from killing the women and children by a brave group of 39 men and boys, Negro and white. Before the police came, the mob had smashed the rented chairs and burned our music. While they shouted anti-Negro and anti-Semitic epithets and boasted that they would finish Hitler's job. Freddie Hellerman, People's Artists. I want to tell you how the entire nation was aroused by the Peekskill outrage. The Westchester Committee for Law and Order invited People's Artists to return to Peekskill and have their concert. Well, we did go back on September 4th. It was Labor Day, and we went back 25,000 strong. While 4,000 trade unionists, most of them real veterans, formed a protective guard, we held our concert with Paul Robeson and Pete Seeger and Hope Foy Lee Hambro, George Allen, and Joan Schlesinger, and it was a beautiful day, a fine performance, and a victory for all Americans.
fascism. Not in Germany, but here in America. Remember it. This is Pete Seeger. I was there too. There were 900 police, deputies, and state troopers at Peekskill. They allowed the mob to form along a four-mile line of road and directed all traffic down this only exit and then stood by watching while the hoodlums threw rocks through the windows of cars and buses. Heads were bashed in, eyes were cut by flying glass, cars were overturned and the people in them dragged out and beaten, and the police stood by and laughed. Hoodlum gangs went on a night-long reign of terror all through Westchester County, clear down to 210th Street and Broadway. Then the police moved. They moved into the picnic grounds to beat up the trade union guards. Over 160 wounded were reported at hospitals. One trade unionist, for example, had his nose pulverized, his skull fractured, and lost the sight of one eye permanently. Protests have been pouring into Dewey from all over the country. District Attorney Finelli reported to Governor Dewey, Police should be commended for their excellent work. And Governor Dewey said to Mr. Finelli, The police did an excellent job. The communists provoked this. Uh, you investigate the riot, Mr. Finelli. But at a great mass meeting to protest Peekskill, Paul Robeson gave our answer. These clan-inspired and police-condoned hoodlums cannot stop the song of freedom in America. We are going on singing and presenting our concerts in every corner of America. Let's fight together. All across the nation we are telling you this tale. You can marvel at the concert and know we have not failed. We shed our blood at peak skill and suffered many a pain. But we beat back the fascists and we'll beat them back again. <laughs> 